All that changed one night in 1992 at Lincoln Center. The lights had just been dimmed, and I was rushing to find my seat in the concert hall. The featured event was a documentary film about a black tank unit that had fought in World War II. I had been enlisted to assist in a number of public speaking appearances in which members of the unit would describe their combat experiences. I had been interested for some time in the struggle of black veterans to gain the recognition they deserved, in part because of my father's experience in the Army. My dad was trained in artillery at Fort Bragg, specializing in the 155mm howitzer, and was qualified and eager for an opportunity to fight the Germans. But like many African Americans in what was still a segregated army, he never got that chance. Most blacks were allowed only to train, and it was hoped that this limited gesture would be enough to ensure the black community's support for the war effort. Accepting the inevitable, my dad chose to serve in a band unit and never left the States for the duration of his tour of duty. His experience in the Army had another unexpected benefit, however, because it was during his military service that he met my mom. He always said it was the high point of his time in uniform. African Americans in support roles performed important tasks from the outset of the war, including loading convoy ships, carrying out mess duties, driving supply trucks and ambulances through the combat zones, and constructing military highways. Later, as Allied casualties mounted and replacements became an issue, some African-American units were finally given the chance to fight. The 761st, the heroic tank battalion chronicled in a documentary film I was about to watch, was one of these units. One special aspect of the 761st's role in the war concerned their involvement in the liberation of some of the Nazi concentration camps. That night at Lincoln Center, Harlem Democrats Percy Sutton and Charles Rangel, who both served with the Tuskegee Airmen, were in attendance, as were such notables as Lena Horne, Roy Haynes, Sidney Lumet, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, and other highly regarded members of New York's black and Jewish communities. As I hurried to my seat, I heard an oddly familiar voice call out, Hey, young man! Something about that voice transported me back in time, to my teenage years. I turned, and there was Leonard Smith. What are you doing here? I asked him in surprise. Smitty replied that he had been a member of the 761st. With the lights flickering on and off, signaling the imminent start of the film, we had to get to our separate seats. Running into Smitty after all these years was a pleasant shock, but what I saw in the film left me speechless. Smitty had been involved as a tank gunner in some of the most intense fighting of World War II. He had fought in five countries and had been awarded the Bronze Star for Valor. When I found Smitty after the screening, I was unable to adequately express how deeply I had been affected by what I had just seen. Being exposed to a side of a person you've known that has been hidden or ignored for so long can be very disorienting. Smitty had never mentioned his war record, even to my dad. In the years since I learned of his service, I've come to find out that many soldiers, both black and white, who returned from the war never mentioned the ordeals they faced in combat. They all seemed to feel that they were just doing their jobs and deserved no special acknowledgement for performing their duty. Unfortunately, some of the events referred to in the documentary I saw that night, Liberators, fighting on two fronts in World War II, had not been adequately researched. The film was produced with the best of intentions, but crucial facts were incorrect or transposed. The resulting controversy tarnished the record of one of the most highly decorated and courageous combat units in the war and made me aware of the need to tell the 761st story in a way that would attempt, insofar as possible, after almost 60 years, to set the record straight. That evening in 1992 sent me off on a 12-year journey to find out more about the battalion, and the more I learned, the more I wanted to know.
I began to collect memorabilia, which included articles and the first book written about the 761st, Come Out Fighting, by war correspondent Tres Van Anderson, as well as photographs of battalion members and of the unit in action. A later book, The 761st Black Panther Tank Battalion in World War II, written by Joe W. Wilson, Jr., the son of a unit member, became an illuminating and invaluable resource. I continued to research the 761st combat record, the records of the infantry divisions they fought beside, the history of African Americans in the United States military, and the history of the Second World War in general, so that what the men witnessed and achieved could be seen and appreciated in the largest possible context. I began to arrange and conduct a series of audio and video interviews with several of the battalion's surviving members. Beginning in 2002, I worked along with Anthony Walton to arrive at a way of telling this story that would reflect the courage, honor, and integrity of these men. In telling the story of the 761st Tank Battalion, we have chosen to focus on three members of the 761st in particular. In so doing, we in no way mean to diminish the bravery and contributions of the other soldiers in the unit. Rather, these three men serve as guides into and through the experiences of a distinguished group of American citizens and soldiers during one of the most difficult periods of our nation's history. I believe theirs is a story that should be known. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Los Angeles, February 26, 2004 January 9th the German Mark IV panzer tanks, concealed by dense pine woods, waited until the Sherman was halfway across the snow-covered field, fully exposed. They opened fire with a barrage of machine guns and artillery. The stillness of the morning was shattered by the explosion of shells and whistling bullets. On the ragged, disorganized battlefield, the American tank and its supporting infantry had somehow found themselves behind enemy lines. Several infantrymen fell at the opening onslaught. The rest fled in disarray. The Sherman tank's commander, Teddy Windsor, yelled for the gunner, William McBurney, to return fire with armor-piercing and high-explosive shells, while frantically directing his driver to turn. Leonard Smith, the loader, rammed one shell after another into the breach as the Sherman fired back into the trees. Suddenly, the tank was rocked by an explosion as it struck a German landmine. It shuddered to a stop. A rain of high-velocity 75 and 88-millimeter artillery began falling all around it. Smith, McBurney, and Windsor fled the paralyzed vehicle, diving out of the turret hatch. Their driver, however, hesitated. He stood up in his seat but didn't move. The others called his name, begging him to jump. A moment later, he was virtually decapitated by a direct artillery hit. The explosion also ignited the ammunition stowed on board. Smith wept openly as he watched flames lift from the turret. His friend, McBurney, grabbed him and pulled him back. I don't belong here, 20-year-old Leonard Smith thought to himself. He was supposed to be back in bivouac, repairing Cool Stud, the tank in which he had landed on the debris-strewn aftermath of Omaha Beach two months earlier and driven across France. But after sixty straight days on the front lines, Cool Stud, like more than half the tanks of Charlie Company, one of the five companies of the 761st Tank Battalion of George Patton's 3rd U.S. Army, had broken down. 
The unit itself had been dangerously thin during Patton's fall SAR campaign, with casualties approaching 40%. Patton's attack had been halted by a surprise German counteroffensive, the Battle of the Bulge. On Christmas Day, the 761st had rushed north across the icy roads to Belgium to help stop the Germans. They had been fighting for over a week in the Ardennes forest during the coldest winter in Europe in 35 years, a cold beyond imagining. They had no winter gear, garbed in regular combat fatigues and boots without lining. After another brutally cold night, the crew of Cool Stud had been more than happy for a short break from the action, huddled around the fires the G.I.s made from twigs, boards, fences, anything that would burn. Smith, who in the folly of youth had continued to view the war as an extended game of cowboys and Indians, had eagerly volunteered that morning to round out the depleted crew of his friend's tank. Smith, McBurney, and Windsor crawled slowly across the open field, past the bodies of infantrymen fallen moments before, as well as bodies frozen solid in grotesque poses from the previous day's fighting. The bitter cold had turned the skin of the dead the purplish-red color of wine. Smith found himself face to face with a dead German soldier whose eyes were a vivid, clear blue. Windsor and McBurney, dragging their forty-five caliber submachine guns with them, returned fire at intervals on the German tanks and white-clad infantry as they struggled to make their way. Mortar fire burst behind and in front of them. Machine guns spat at their feet. In their green regulation uniforms, they were easy targets against the freshly fallen snow. Windsor led, followed by McBurney, with Smith at the rear. They had gone about three hundred yards when McBurney stopped.